With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. So many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you could screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also going to be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball, and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Well, Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Caroline D. Benedictus. In this episode, we dive deep into specific pediatric eye conditions and how they are best diagnosed and treated. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. Also, be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. So I digressed away from the diseases. Let's go back to uh, nasal lacrimal duct obstruction. A lot okay. of kids, they're tearing. Parents are very worried about it. What do we? What kind of recommendations? What's causing it? And what kind of recommendations for that? Okay, so uh, super, super common, something we deal with a lot. Um, what happens is we all have little tubes in our upper and lower eyelids that essentially drain your tears into your nose. Uh, and there's a, a valve at the bottom and it basically, I tell parents, um, you know, in a not very scientific professional way that it prevents boogers from going up into their kid's eyes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's really common for that valve to not be totally open when they're born. Um, but we've learned through time and research that 90% open on their own in the first year of life. So, you know, I think previously they used to treat it right away, but now we've learned that we don't necessarily have to. So. A lot of times what we recommend is either observation or you can do uh, massages um, to kind of help try and promote that valve opening. And I would say most of the time when people have this type of issue, I never see them again because it goes away on their own. Uh, after a year old, 
um, it can still open on its own, but the statistics go down. And so the ideal time that based on research currently is that between 13 and 15 months is probably a good time to offer what we call a probing, uh, which is essentially where you go in and you take a little, uh, little instrument that looks like a pen and you just kind of basically thread it through the, the tubing system and pop it open at the bottom. Um, you know, some people are, um, at least in ophthalmology, are taught different things. Uh, some people like to put little tubes in to kind of hold things open at their first procedure. I don't, I'm more conservative. I like to just pop it open because most of the time it does the trick. And with kids, from my personal opinion, less is more. Uh, so, um, you know, I think the biggest thing for parents is the crusting and the tearing and it bothers them because they're seeing it. Um, I think the the massages, um, the probably most common reason that they don't work or people don't do them right. So when kids are born, you know, we all have this nasal bone here. So if you're just kind of like pushing here, you're pushing on bone, but there's a little area of the lacrimal sac, which is like the little part of the system that comes up here. And so what I recommend people do is, is they take their finger, um, and when their child is laying in their arms and they take a finger and they just go up and then push down like this. And what that does is it increases the pressure in that system to hopefully pop out the valve at the bottom. Um, parents are always worried they're gonna hurt their child and they won't. I mean, the kid, child's gonna cry, but that's them saying, I don't like what you're doing, but you're not gonna hurt them. And um, I have seen them pop open um, you know, with that maneuver. Uh, so the times I get concerned and then I might treat uh, a nasal lacrimal duct obstruction earlier than, you know, around 13 or 15 months is if they get repeated infections and repeated infections, not like crusting on the eyelashes, but red skin, like a cellulitis, they're allowed to get once. But if they start getting it repeatedly, I, I would definitely want to do a probe earlier uh, because of, again, risk benefit. Risk of getting repeated skin infections, needing to be on antibiotics and having it spread is much worse than, you know, putting them to sleep and popping it open. Right. We don't want it to spread into the brain. Exactly. So when you probe, do you have to put them on the general anesthesia? So I do. Um, but it's a like five minute procedure. Uh -huh. um, and so uh, when it's just one eye, sometimes what I do is I don't, um, they don't even have a tube. They just have a little face mask and then I just do it really quick. And so they're really asleep for a very short period of time. But I think around 13 to 15 months, um, they're at an age where you could harm them if they're you know, moving around a lot. You could try to propose them, but then there's also the uh, aspect of, um, psychological impact of torturing a child uh, that most parents would agree, you know, the better way to go is just a quick procedure um, instead of doing it awake. And one more time to show us how to do the... the uh, sure. Uh, so you can take any finger um, and then, so if you're right-handed and you're a parent, you hold them in your left arm in the crux of your arm here, and you can take a pinky and you come, you come up here in that corner above the bone and then go in this fashion down and with a lot of pressure it's a lot more pressure than you think um, and if you do that you're going to catch the top kind of soft end of that lacrimal sac and not just push on bone which won't really accomplish much once they're a little bit older and how many times a day should they do that or 
you know, I mean, the more, the better, but I, I mean, you don't want to torture yourself or the child. So within reason, maybe every feeding, uh, when they're younger, you could do it. And then a few times a day when they get older, um, it's important to realize. And I think it's people who practice pediatrics in any field is that there's the medical recommendations and then there's the human recommendations. It's always really important to remember that you don't want parents to be driving themselves crazy for something that isn't always necessary. So sure, doing a, a, a massage, um, you know, every hour, will that increase the chance that it opens the valve? Sure. Is it going to drive them crazy? Yeah. So it's all about being reasonable. Before you mention a, when the parent is looking at the child at home, if one eye is bigger, yeah. uh, talk about congenital glaucoma, because that could be a sign of congenital glaucoma. Mm -hmm. So congenital glaucoma happens. It's not very common. Um, usually it, it, there's a genetic link and we're learning a lot more about the genetic testing and, and links. Um, people who have a family history of glaucoma when they're diagnosed over 45, 55, that's a totally different ball game. So parents don't have to worry if, you know, a grandparent was diagnosed with glaucoma, uh, if their child is at risk, it's really people who are diagnosed at a younger age. Um, so glaucoma is when the pressure inside of the eye is too high for the health of the eye. Um, and it presents a little bit differently in children because their eyes are still growing. Um, in, a, in an adult, when the pressure goes up, their eye is already fully formed. So you're not gonna see any changes really in the appearance of the eye unless it's a really quick sudden increase with something like what we call angle closure glaucoma. In children, constant high pressure it expands and stretches the eye. The white part of the eye is called the sclera. And there's disulfide bonds that form over time that help strengthen the sclera so that it doesn't expand and move. And so in a child, their eye is super, super soft. And when the pressure is too high, one of the things you see is a larger eye. It gets longer. The colored part of the eye um, with the clear covering, the cornea gets super big. They can also get cloudiness of their uh, cornea, which should be clear. It's like the crystal covering dome over the eye and that can be cloudy in a child. Um, so if you see, you know, uh, when I was training, I remember a, a patient who uh, the parents said that everyone said what big beautiful eyes they had. And it turned out unfortunately that they had glaucoma. Uh, and so, um, when that happens, the eye does not shrink down once you treat the glaucoma. Once it's larger or asymmetric, it usually will stay asymmetric, but it will grow um, relative to, to each eye. Uh, so those are some things that if you see that, if you see that the eyes are, are either too big or too small or asymmetric, that can be a sign of high pressure in the eye. And how is congenital glaucoma typically treated? So it's a, it's a very interesting question because, you know, the tech, there's a textbook answer and then there's real life. So textbook answer is that you treat surgically, right? So you will um, sometimes use medication to bring the pressure to a reasonable um, range until you can get them into the OR. And usually, you know, just straightforward congenital glaucoma, 
uh, is treated surgically. Um, there are ways to go in and kind of open up the drain for the fluid inside of the eye to decrease the pressure. Um, however, in my training, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, one of the world's experts in pediatric uh, glaucoma and uh, ocular genetics. And so it really just depends on, on the cause and the reason for the glaucoma because there are congenital syndromes uh, where you might manage things a little bit differently. You might um, follow them a little bit differently, more frequently, less frequently, or screen them differently. So I think the real world answer is that it just really depends on what type what age, um, and if it's associated with the systemic syndrome. But typically, the younger they are, the more you want to do surgery. Um, and then you go into drops uh, and medications. And sometimes we use oral medications in kids um, as well. Is there a time where they no longer need the medication? Well, that's I have very seen. rare. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I mean, look, kids don't read the textbook, right? So they're going to do what they do. And, you know, I have seen kids that were diagnosed with congenital glaucoma and they had um, a goniotomy, which is the surgery, and they did great. And they didn't need anything afterwards. Eventually, it's a lifelong disease. So eventually, a lot of them will need medication uh, or further surgeries. As they get older, you have more tools in your um, disposal to treat them. There's medications you can't use in really young kids that you can use when they're older or adults. There are surgeries that are likely to be more successful the older they are compared to younger. So if you're doing these surgeries and you're keeping them off drops and medication and uh, getting them through their childhood, I mean, it's a huge service to them. I have seen a few kids that are just totally off of medication after treatment when they're young. Um, so yeah, I've seen it. Is the pressure similar in kids as it is in adults? Are we shooting for the same pressure? Yeah, yeah, it's a very similar, um, it's a very similar range, uh, but there's a lot of different factors in um, calculating pressure. So it's the thickness of the eye, the thickness of the cornea uh, can really affect um, the pressure that you're measuring either over or underestimate. So we definitely, there's a lot of different factors we look at. The interesting, really fun thing about kids is that um, what happens with glaucoma in high pressure is, is that it kind of eats away at the nerve. The nerve connects the eye to the brain, and we can see it in the back of the eye when we do an eye exam. And one of the signs of glaucoma can be that you have kind of this big cup or indentation in your nerve in the back of your eye, and that can be a sign of glaucoma. Now, when that happens in adults, it is what it is. It stays that way. But if you have a really young kid and you catch the glaucoma early, I've actually seen that cupping inside the nerve improve, which is just fascinating. And great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's go back to cataracts. You mentioned it a little bit before. What would cause cataracts in an infant? So I would say the, the rule of thumb is that a third are um, inherited a third are systemic syndromes and a third are unknown. Now that's gonna change over time as our testing modalities and genetics gets better. Um, I would say the most common reason that I see is that it's genetic. And so a lot of times when I see a child with a cataract at a young age, uh, a lot of times I'll examine the parents in the office because sometimes they have asymptomatic cataracts that they never knew they had. And that always makes me feel a lot better saying that it, you know autosomal dominant uh, is the most common. Um, but there can be other things that cause it, systemic me uh, medical issues, um, infections, 
um, can cause uh, cataracts trauma. Um, I always think it's important when you work with children that you always entertain trauma as a cause of any pediatric eye issue. Um, if you don't think about it, you'll miss it. And it usually isn't, but it should always be a thought in the back of your head. Could this be trauma? Could this be child abuse? Um, so that can cause uh, chronic medication use. So a lot of times what I'll ask, uh, if it's not congenital, like meaning that they're born with it, but if it's something that's acquired or something that develops over time, um, I always ask, um, were they premature? that can uh, make you more likely to get cataracts. Do they have autoimmune diseases or asthma? Because sometimes the treatments that they need to treat those like chronic steroid use can cause cataracts. Um, I've seen uh, diabetes uh, cause cataracts in some children as well. Um, so really it's about taking a really good history and ruling things out. And the type of cataract, does that ever clue you into a specific type of disease? It does. Um, you know, the, the lens, I always, the way I describe it to parents and to patients is that it is like an M&M. It has a hard candy shell on the outside and the soft chocolate middle that's made up of layers like an onion. And any part of that lens can get cloudy and we call it a cataract. And so you can have um, the back part of the candy shell can be up normal. The front part of the candy shell can be abnormal, the middle part. So there's definitely um, metabolic syndromes that, you know, if you have a certain type of cataract, it can clue you in to um, do certain type of testing. I'm a big proponent with cataracts that you should work really closely with your pediatrician uh, and or geneticist so that you're really doing a pointed workup. It's not where we just kind of test for everything. Um, that's not gonna help you or the family. Um, so if it's uh, a child that has a bilateral cataract and has some type of other medical condition, I work closely with their pediatrician to try and figure out what's going on. And timing for cataract surgery, because we don't want the child to become amblyopic where that I, once the cataract comes out, they still can't see. So the timing right. is very important. Super important. So a child who's born with a cataract, because they can be born with a cataract, and that's why that screening with a pediatrician and the newborn nursery is so important. If they're born with a cataract, you're on the clock because they're not getting any visual stimulation. Um, so a unilateral cataract needs to be operated on sooner um, just by a few weeks than a bilateral cataract. And the theory is that when they're both not, you know, blocked without good vision, you're not, your brain isn't going to favor one eye over the other. Um, so the rule of thumb is that a child with a visually significant congenital or born with cataract in one eye, it needs to be removed, uh, within four to six weeks of life. Um, you know, at four weeks, you're still able to save their vision, but they're a little bit older and any risk of anesthesia have decreased. Now, obviously, in my opinion, you need to make these decisions with the pediatrician and with your anesthesiologist. If there's ever a case where it's way too unsafe to do the surgery, well, I'm gonna do what's right for the patient in general. But four to six weeks of life with one cataract, two cataracts, um, you have a little more leeway, so up to six to eight weeks, but you definitely want to do them sequentially um, within a week of each other because we really don't want stimulation getting into one eye over the other early on. Now, when they're older and they have what we call an acquired cataract, um, you have they've had a period of division development. 
So they're in a much better situation. And so you don't have to remove it the next day. Obviously you don't want to delay too much, but it's not an emergency as it is with the newborn. How quick is the recovery when you do cataract surgery on a newborn compared to an adult? Quick, um, you know, cataract surgery in in a child compared to an adult is much more complicated. Um, you know, in adults it takes like fifteen minutes, right? And then they kind of walk out and they have some drops. But in a child, it's a whole different ball game. Their eye is different. Their eye is soft when you're doing these cataracts. Um, so they recover fairly quickly for the amount of surgery they actually have. So it's really about getting them medication after the surgery to prevent inflammation. Um, children are really at risk of inflammation, especially in the eye. And so that's gonna make them more likely to have scarring and problems down the road. Uh, so I like to give them a lot of uh, steroid medication early on and also a little shield over the little ones uh, to protect the eye so they don't re-injure it. Um, but I would say most people are pleasantly surprised surprised with how quickly uh, the children uh, kind of return to normal eating and, and um, feeding habits and sleeping habits. So the, the big question is the intraocular lens. Mm -hmm. So with an adult, we take out the lens, which is the right. cataract that's become cloudy. We put an artificial one in. Mm -hmm. How about with a, with a baby? So with a baby, um, again, there's a lot of considerations. Without the lens, they're going to be extremely blurry, right? So they're getting more light, but they're not necessarily getting the focused vision to help stimulate that development. Um, so under, you want to try to put an intraocular lens in the eye when it's safe. So again, risk versus benefit. Um, I don't put a lens in under two. Some people are willing to go uh, between uh, to one, uh, but I don't do it under two. When it's under two, I don't put a lens in and I leave them what we call a phacic, which is without a lens. And then we correct the vision with uh, um, ideally a, contact, a thick contact lens to help them focus. Uh, occasionally, you know, that might not work. And so they might need really big, thick glasses. Now you can put a, a secondary lens in, an intraocular lens in when they're older. Um, but I don't do it under two years old. Two years and older, I choose to put a lens in. There's a few reasons for that. One is that the pediatric eye undergoes significant amount of growth in the first uh, few years of life. And so I try to decrease the number of surgeries these children are having. Uh, surgery is surgery. Uh, and I try to decrease the chance that they could have, um, you know, an adverse outcome from a surgery. And so predicting their adult Refractive error is a lot more difficult based on measurements when they're under two years old. So what I prefer to do um, is wait until they're two, pr uh, predict their adults uh, refractive error, and then place a lens that they're going to have for their whole life. Um, and under two, um, you know, they're at an increased risk of inflammation, uh, lens dislocation, uh, you know, inaccurate refractive reading. Um, and um, glaucoma, inflammation, retinal detachments. So for those reasons, I feel more comfortable not putting a lens in someone under two. And are there multifocal implants for babies? I don't do that. I don't know many people that do. Um, you know, again, the research may tell me something different in the future, but uh, for right now, we don't typically do the multifocal in kids. I think, you know, the problem right now with multifocals is that, um, you know, if you've ever seen an adult who has had it, it can be hit or miss. Some people love it, but some people are miserable and demand to take it out. And it's really hard to predict um, 
I think that they're doing research now, which may change our minds in the future. So I'm open to that. But right now, I personally don't do it. Hopefully someday they'll have that for babies because that would be a wonderful thing that, you know, works most of the time. Yep. So let's talk, let's turn our attention to retinitis of prematurity. Mm -hmm. That's something that you deal with a lot as a, as a pediatric ophthalmologist. So I personally don't do a lot of the screening. I see the children when they're older. I have a lot of colleagues that uh, go into the hospital and the NICU um, and do the screening and treatment. So at what, you know, at, at uh, 1200 or a thousand grams, less than a thousand gram baby, that's when we really have to worry about uh, retinitis of prematurity. Is, is that correct? Right. So it's, it's um, retinopathy of prematurity. So what happens is when the baby's in, in the belly, uh, their eye develops in a, in a certain uh, fashion and timeline. And so the blood vessels inside the eye, they start in your optic nerve, kind of in the center of the eye, and then they kind of grow out around it, it. You can almost picture it like a wine glass, like open like this, and the blood vessels kind of grow out along the outer surface. So that process starts when they're um, early on in the early second trimester. And then what happens is it continues a along a certain time course. And it usually finishes about like 32 weeks-ish. Um, and so what happens in someone who's premature is that when they're born, that process hasn't completed yet. So the blood vessels may not be all the way grown out to the edge of the eye where they should be. So we're at whenever, however early they're born, that's where the blood vessels stop. Now, in some kids, what happens is even after they're born, their blood vessels continue to grow in the retina where they should. Um, however, for a lot of different reasons, um, sometimes that growth can be stunted. And so what happens is the blood vessels, instead of growing where they should in the retina along the out, uh, outer lining of the eye, they start growing into the center of the eye. That's a big problem uh, because what happens is they're not normal blood vessels. They're not as strong. They're very friable and, and fragile and they can bleed. And so what happens is they can develop scarring and what we call traction or pulling, and they can develop retinal detachments. And so before they really knew a lot about retinopathy of prematurity and how to prevent it and treat it, um, a lot of kids were going blind from retinal detachments. But now what we do is we know kids who are low birth weight or burn early before a certain um, number of weeks of pregnancy are at risk. And so uh, what a lot of pediatric ophthalmologists will do is they'll go in every week and screen these children to see how far along they are in their blood vessel development. And if the blood vessels are developing normally, they do nothing. Then if the blood vessels are not developing normally, they have certain criteria they look for. And if those blood vessels start growing abnormally and into the center of the eye, there's treatments that they can do to help kind of stunt that abnormal growth and hopefully kind of reset the development so that the blood vessels continue to grow. Um, it has evolved, the treatment has evolved over time. Um, the mainstay of treatment is laser in the retina. So what they learned is that if you take a laser and you laser the area of the retina where there's no blood vessels, it decreases that, that stimulation that the eye is uh, sending to those blood vessels to grow abnormally. 
Um, more recently, there are medications that have been used for other things in the body. Um, and they found that they can inject them into the eye and get um, a similar response to the laser. Um, so th there's all these different treatments and it's really, it saves kids from going blind. Uh, so if your child is born premature, then you want, you should expect and want um, your child to be screened um, for retinopathy of prematurity to basically ensure that they continue to develop and don't go is that is that anti-VEGF uh, injection? Yeah. Yep. Avastin is is the mainstay right now, um, and uh, they've made really great advancements in uh, Avastin treatment in dosing, and and it's less and less of an amount of dose that's being administered, uh, and so I think it's more widely used than when I was a resident. When I was a resident, it was really super rare, and now there's children that meet the criteria for Avastin uh, a little more commonly. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit oiebroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. Let's talk about one of your specialties, strabismus. Mm -hmm. uh, at what age would you, you start? We talked about around two months. When would you do strabismus surgery? And what could we expect from strabismus, strabismus surgery? And I guess, what is strabismus? So strabismus is the medical term for any eye misalignment. So your natural eye position should be with the eye straight facing forward. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons why someone's eyes might not be pointing in the same direction. They could be crossed, they could be out or up or down. Um, the reason this is important in kids is that they're still developing their vision. And so what happens if my eyes started crossing now or your eyes started crossing, we would get double vision. And in a child, since they're still developing their vision, they have the ability to get rid of that double vision by shutting off an eye. So the way I explain it to parents is that um, if you have an eye that's crossed, your brain is smart, not lazy. And it says, this eye's straight, it's easier to see with, this eye's crossing, I'm going to kind of ignore this one. And so they don't have double vision and they develop good vision in one eye and they ignore the other eye. And there's a critical time period when kids are developing where we can reverse that and we can continue to develop vision in their lazy eye or their smart, smart brain. Um, and so it always starts with a full exam to make sure the eye is healthy. There's a lot of different reasons why a child's eye might not be aligned. Um, so it could be an anatomical issue. It could be a cataract. It could be a, an eye tumor. It could be glaucoma. It could be genetics uh, or it could be refractive error. So essentially any good strabismologist will do a full eye exam to make sure the eye is healthy and make sure that there's nothing else underlying it that needs to be treated. The second step is maximizing the vision. So if they need glasses for any reason, for a high refractive error. So mild refractive errors in kids don't really matter. They're gonna develop their vision. High refractive errors or asymmetric refractive errors, um, that's gonna be an issue for strabismus. So I always start with maximizing the vision. Next step is if they need patching. Uh, patching is where we cover one eye to uh, strengthen the weaker eye. Now patching doesn't really um, work as well when it's not one eye drifting. There has been some, there's been some research and there are uh, different specialists that might consider patching or alternate patching um, 
but we know that patching works really well when it's just one eye that drifts and you cover the straighter eye to get the brain to kind of get used to using that eye again. If after all of that, they're still drifting, if their eyes still crossing um, or going out, uh, at that point, I would consider surgery. Uh, the younger they are, the earlier you want to get that eye straight. Uh, by whatever means necessary. Um, but you definitely don't want to skip steps because sometimes you can actually avoid surgery by going through those steps. Um, now there's a type of crossing called accommodative esotropia. And it's basically, it just sounds fancy, but it's really a, a focusing crossing where the eyes cross because they're super farsighted. For those kids, glasses are the treatment. I don't recommend surgery for that. Um, and what it's important to tell the parents when that happens is that when those kids take their glasses off, their eyes are going to cross because they're trying to focus. Um, when they put the glasses on, the eyes are straight. Sometimes they grow out of it. Sometimes as they age, they're not as farsighted. So you won't really need the glasses as often. Sometimes they do. Um, but that, you know, not all crossing is the same. Not all strabismus is the same. And so the treatment really needs to be tailored to the underlying reason for why their eye is drifting. And how do you decide how much of the muscle to cut uh, when you're doing strabismus? And is there a chance to get stereopsis back? There is a chance uh, to get stereopsis back. The younger they are, the more likely. Um, we know how much to move uh, the muscle. I, I like to tell parents that people a lot smarter than me a long time ago did a lot, a lot of work to come up with essentially tables. And so we measure how much the eye is drifting and convert that to a distance with how much we um, move the muscle. So we basically, I like to, I don't usually operate after one measurement because I like things to be reliable, measure twice, cut once. Um, so I like there to be repeated measurements of stability, especially in kids. Once you have a stable measurement, then you can use your tables to uh, estimate uh, where and how much to move the muscle. As we start to finish up here, just a couple of things that parents are always very come in a lot on. One is allergic conjunctivitis. We have allergic, we have vernal. <laughs> if you can make the distinction between the two and is there any tricks to the trade in treating vernal? So, Allergic conjunctivitis, any itching in the eyes is kind of allergies until proven otherwise. And there's certain things you can look for in the eye under uh, on an exam, on a um, slit lamp exam, which is our kind of machine that magnifies the eye um, to distinguish them. Um, usually when it's just run of the mill conjunctivitis, you're gonna see that it's seasonal. Um, it may be associated with what we call allergic shiners, which are those kind of dark circles underneath the eyes that kids get or um, stuffy nose, um, itchy nose, and a little bit of redness, sometimes swelling around the eye. Um, for straightforward uh, allergic conjunctivitis, uh, uh, over-the-counter allergy drops are fine. I don't usually recommend Visine for children, um, nothing for get the red out. Uh, because I think I'm just going to move over here a little bit to try and not be in the sun. Um, that was worse. <laughs> um, so uh, just run-of-the-mill conjunctivitis or um, allergy drops usually do the trick. Um, that can be Zatator, Patanol, Patidae. Patanol and Patidae are actually over-the-counter now. They used to be prescription. Um, Cool compresses can sometimes decrease um, the symptoms and itching or even putting the allergy drop in the refrigerator. Uh, and what that does is it cools down the drops and it can help soothe the itching. 
you usually are going to need an eye drop with allergic conjunctivitis. Uh, you can use the oral medication, but your, your eyes are exposed to the world and they're getting bombarded with these allergens. And so a lot of times when they have itchy eyes, you're going to have to also use an eye drop. Now, vernal conjunctivitis is a, is a little bit of a different ballgame. Uh, vernal conjunctivitis is a really severe form of allergic conjunctivitis. Um, it's more common in young men, uh, African-American men uh, in particular, but I'll be honest, I've seen it in, in everyone out there. Um, and what happens is they have this really robust inflammatory reaction. And so what you'll see under the eyelids are these these really big uh, inflammatory nodules. And then what you can also see is a lot of swelling at what we call the limbus. So the limbus is where the, the white part of the eye meets the colored part of the eye. And so you'll get these things called Horner transverse dots and there's these big pillowy looking swelling. Um, and it's kind of, I, I can spot it across the room sometimes because these poor kids are just super swollen. Um, those kids can get really bad eye uh, inflammation and it can actually cause scarring and vision loss. So for these kids, it's really important to make sure that they don't have what we call an epithelial defect. So sometimes those big inflammatory nodules underneath the eyelid can scrape away the surface of your cornea, cause a severe pain, um, they're super sensitive to light and they can get infected. Um, so you wanna make sure they don't have um, any surface issues on the cornea, the clear covering on the eye. And you wanna get them started on a really aggressive regimen that's gonna be a combination of allergy medication like antihistamines as well as likely steroids. Uh, to decrease those, um, those, uh, that swelling. Um, they usually are going to need to be on an oral medication as well. And a lot of times if it's really bad, I have them see an allergist um, and then I follow them frequently. Uh, but vernal conjunctivitis can be, can be really severe in patients and hard to control. Um, typically for those patients who have vernal conjunctivitis, uh, I tell the parents that two weeks before the beginning of the um, predicted allergy season, uh, those kids should automatically start their uh, allergy medication because once it gets ramped up, it's, it's really difficult to stop. I've had some kids, you know, it's really hard to get them off the steroids as well, which we don't want them on steroids long-term, um, but uh, it, can, it can be, vernal conjunctivitis can be difficult to treat. People that watch the podcast, I have to ask you this because they wanted me to ask you this question about ocular tumors. And mm -hmm. if you see retinal blastoma or one of these, you know, one of these terrible tumors, how is that handled? Who, who handles those? So ocular tumors, um, especially in pediatrics, should absolutely be a multi-specialty team approach. Um, so in my experience, that is a combination of a pediatric ophthalmologist, an ocular oncologist, uh, and a pediatrician, um, and other allied health professionals. Uh, so typically, if you see something like an ocular tumor, you're immediately going to make a referral to an ocular oncologist who has experience, um, and that is collaborative because these children need um, you know, the more uh, common one that people hear about is retinoblastoma, um, which is an intraocular tumor of those photoreceptor cells like uh, cones and rods we were talking about earlier. Uh, and so um, signs of that can be 
you know, strabismus or that red reflux abnormality uh, that we talked about earlier. So for those patients, I would immediately send them to an ocular oncologist and, um, you know, be ready to help the parents in any way, you know, that we can. The last two things I want to ask you is that because of the mass, a lot of kids are having styes. We're seeing a lot of preceptal cellulitis, maybe more in adults than kids, mm -hmm. but we're seeing it. And do you have any recommendations for prevention for those? Maybe explain what that is and, and sure. any kind of prevention recommendations. Sure. So styes are basically, so we all have oil glands around our eyelids. They secrete oil into our tears and that prevents our tears from evaporating too quickly. It really prevents dryness. And there's two times in our life when we're more susceptible to that. Uh, one is when we're, you know, young kids, especially young boys, and one is when we're kind of older uh, women. Uh, so it's really a common thing that I see in kids. And so what happens is those oil glands get stopped up for whatever reason. Um, and what you see, that bump you see is not necessarily an infection. It's a swelling. The gland continues to make oil. That oil is trapped in the gland. It has nowhere to go. You can also have a, like an inflammatory reaction. Uh, so that's what a sty is. A chalazian is another term people may have heard. Uh, chalazian, I like to call it a lazy chalazian, a lazy sty. It's a sty that's been there for a while. Um, and so there's a lot of different things you can do for styes and chalazia. Um, and there's a spectrum, right? There's a spectrum from doing almost nothing to the most advanced, which is surgery. Now, there's nothing bad about having a sty medically for the eye or vision development. Um, things you worry about the most are if they get infected, so signs of cellulitis. And so those we tend to treat a little bit more aggressively. Um, so you can um, do nothing and a lot of times they will go away, but it can take uh, months uh, and months and months and months. Um, there are warm compresses. So um, warm compresses are really difficult to do in really young kids. They don't want to sit there with a warm compress. So you do the best you can. In older children, anything that's hot, uh, like a tea bag, you can make tea with a tea bag or heat up a rice sock um, just for the heat. And um, it liquefies the oil trapped in the gland and uh, hopefully it promotes drainage. And if you see drainage, then that's a good thing. That means that the uh, oil is no longer trapped in the gland and is draining. Um, the other thing you can do is um, steroid drops. Um, usually an ophthalmologist will prescribe, um, some optometrists feel comfortable prescribing uh, like an antibiotic steroid uh, combination. And what that does is it decreases the inflammation and can shrink up those styes a little bit quicker. I would say 50% of the time it may not do anything, 50% of the time it shrinks it. Um, and then there's excision. So you can go in and you can kind of cut it open and drain it. Um, the concern in younger kids, you have to put them to sleep to do it. And so a lot of parents are like, you know, if it's not going to cause a problem for their vision or their vision development, let's just kind of do the more conservative things. And I like to do the conservative way as well. Um, to prevent them, you know, there's a few things you can do. Honestly, I think the best way that I've seen is baby, no tears, baby shampoo. Any brand is fine. Just make sure it's no tears. And you set the little up on your fingertip. 
uh, with a little water and have them close their eyes and you gently wash the lashes. No scrubbing and not on the inside of the eye. And that removes something called blepharitis, which is a crusting on the lashes. It's a byproduct of bacteria that lives in our skin. And it can cause a little inflammation on the surface of your eyelids and that can cause problems with size. Um, so doing that once a day for kids who either get frequent recurrent size uh, or kids who are at risk for it because you know they've had it before, their family gets them, um, that can go a long way with preventing them. There's been some studies to suggest, um, you know, omega threes, um, which you know aren't going to harm you. You can use them; it helps prevent dry eye as well. But I would say, in my experience with kids, the baby shampoo is pretty easy. Most parents already have it at home. With a little older kid, do you ever like probe it a little bit just to open it so it drains? Like if yeah, I mean, there. there are times where I see it under the slit lamp and it looks really ripe and I kind of push on it a little bit. Um, but that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I would say not the parent. No, because no. we don't want it to spread. <laughs> no, and we don't want them to injure the eye by accident. And a lot of times they'll drain on their own. What you'll start to see is like a little whitening, like a white head on it. And eventually it'll start draining. That means it's tunneling and it can drain from the outside or from the inside, like underneath the eye or eyelid. The last question I have for you, there's 40,000 eye injuries each year that are sports related. And I'm sure that's something you deal with a lot. You know, they're going to send them to you. And you alluded to this a little bit before. What kind of recommendations would you, can you give to the people out there to prevent them getting sports related eye injuries? Because they could really be between hyphemer and a ruptured globe and lacerations, it could really be a, a, a terrible thing. Yeah, anything can cause an eye injury, almost any sport, honestly. Uh, and, and we're not doing enough to protect kids' eyes. Um, it really is dependent on their league. You know, there's no national mandate for eye protection for all sports, right? So it really depends on the sport, it depends on the league, it depends on the state. Um, so the things that aren't negotiable, um, really are children who have one eye or only one good seeing eye, um, they absolutely have to wear their eye protection. The best eye protection is polycarbonate lenses. That's a really tough plastic that doesn't shatter and it gives you a layer of protection over your eyes. Children who only have one eye, they need to be wearing them anytime they're at risk, whether it's on the sideline um, you know, or on the fields. Uh, I always recommend to my monocular patients where they either have one eye or poor vision in one eye to wear polycarbonate glasses all the time to give a little protection. But especially on the sports field, you'll want sports goggles or the polycarbonate wraparounds. Um, kids um, who participate in high risk sports, which in my opinion is all of them, but not everyone <laughs> agrees, but um, you know, eye protection is becoming more and more uh, mainstream. So it can be built into the helmets uh, or they have the sports goggles. Um, I think that anytime there's an eye injury, they absolutely need to be examined because um, you know there can be things going on in the back of the eye and the retina that you may not notice. Um, but we absolutely need to be protecting kids' eyes. I would say most of the eye injuries that I see are preventable. The thing that really scares me is these paintball games. 100%. Um, I actually wrote like a little um, blog for my um, practice that talks about gift giving in the holiday season. And that if you give a gift that has projectile object, 
you are obligated to give eye protection as well. I mean, you have to use the appropriate eye protection with any toy or activity that has a projectile. Uh, I see those injuries all the time and it's always when you least expect it. Uh, so I would say absolutely eye protection for any game, toy, anything that has a projectile object. And lastly, how often should, at what age should a kid see a pediatric ophthalmologist or a pediatric optometrist? I know the AOA says six months. I'm not sure what the Academy of Ophthalmology recommends, but at what age would you recommend that they really see a real eye doctor rather than a pediatrician? So, you know, the um, AAO and the American Academy of Ophthalmology has a, a little bit of a different recommendation. Um, Earlier in life, we really are um, depending on these screenings by the pediatrician and by the nursing, um, the nurse at the at schools. Um, they're picking up not just kids who have poor vision, but those screenings are designed to pick up risk factors for poor vision and poor vision development. So, I believe that um, the times for a child to get a first eye exam by a pediatric eye specialist are if they fail a vision screening. Uh, at the pediatrician's office or in school. Uh, if the parent, if they have a medical history of something that increases the risk of an eye issue, absolutely, such as prematurity. Um, if there's a family history of eye problems at a young age, uh, such as um, we were talking about genetic uh, congenital cataracts, if there's um, autosomal dominant cataracts in the family, my recommendation are that future children of anyone with a um, inherited cataract, those future children should be examined by a pediatric eye specialist within the first two weeks of life. Um, and if the parents have any reason to be concerned, so learning disabilities, reading difficulties, or any reason at all that there's a concern, they should be examined by a pediatric eye specialist. I think with those, they're kind of loose criteria, but I think, you know, we don't always know what's visual and what's not. And so I think those reasons for concern should warrant an eye exam. I want to thank Dr. Cara. She likes to be called Cara. Uh, D. Benedictus for joining me today. You have such a wonderful way about you. <laughs> just imagine being a parent and coming in and you're the doctor. They must be so thrilled having you as their doctor. If somebody wants to find out more about you, uh, how can they do that? So uh, right now I'm working uh, with Refocus Eye uh, Physicians and uh, refocuseye.com uh, is our website. And I have some blog posts up there. Uh, I'm not usually very active in social media um, just for various reasons. And, uh, you know, I, so I, that's really the only place I am online. Uh, so yeah, that's where I am. So it's, and what, what town in Connecticut is it? So our practice is the where I practice uh, our two locations. One is in Waterbury and one is in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Well, thank you so much. It's been a, a wonderful spending a little over an hour with you. You're fantastic and you're a wealth of knowledge. And, and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I love this podcast because I think it's really getting a lot of information out to people. So thanks for doing it. Uh, this is Dr. Kerry Gell for Open Your Eyes. Until next time, thank you for watching. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. 
Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.